Welcome to the Imago Day podcast, the show of philosophical and theological reflections for today's world. I'm your host, Luis Hernandez, and I am joined by the always insightful Professor Joseph Terry. How are you, Joe? Doing well. What up, what up, everyone? So great to be here with you, Luis. Today, we continue our conversation about the coronavirus pandemic and its impact on the individual and the world. Um, Joe, last week we talked about, um, you know, you shared some of your personal experiences dealing with COVID and, and your career as a professor and how all those things kind of play together. We also talked about um, some of the racial tension. We talked about a whole host of things. And today I want to kind of like look at the present day circumstances with COVID and just kind of looking at the, the way forward because we're, we both kind of alluded to this, that we're in like a weird season with COVID. It feels like we're coming out of the pandemic, you know, like things are opening up. But the fact of the matter is like, this is still an ongoing issue. Right. You know, it's not like COVID mm-hmm. completely disappeared. Um, but I wanted to start our conversation today on the topic of one of your favorite topics, uh, capitalism, <laughs> capitalism <laughs> and COVID and, and just kind of, seeing how the economic system affected the pandemic and vice versa and and just the the multitude of problems that kind of came up during this season um yeah so my first question joe is um what was your take like did any of those did anything pop out to you um between capitalism and, and covid during the pandemic and, you know, just to frame uh, some of my remarks, I, you know, I only speak as a budding theologian and philosopher, not as an economist. Um, of course, there are uh, areas of intersections, specifically within um, my own background in philosophy, in thinking about the systemic structures of, 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 of systems really like capitalism. And, you know, when in, in the experience of COVID, um, like so many, right? Um, one of the things that I sat with was this closing of businesses, right? This, um, the clear effect, negative impact of this virus. Um, of course, globally, as we said last week, existentially, without a doubt, reminding us of our own finitude and our own limits. And that was quite clear, um, not only in the, the the closing of businesses and then the subsequent losing of businesses, uh, mm-hmm. stores that we are familiar with no longer around, uh, folks who are coming in to this sort of free market enterprise with, with dreams and hopes came in exactly at the time of COVID, which was really, right, you know, who could mm-hmm. predict and of course, many of those businesses just did not survive. They didn't have enough capital to to back up their really their dream. They it just was not foreseen. And you know, when we think of capitalism, which sometimes has a bad rap, it gets a bad representation uh, in our sort of cultural moment. Um, I I like to think about it first and foremost from the perspective of what capitalism is, right? Free market enterprise, uh, minimal government intrusion, 
um, finding niche markets, finding ways to multiply, right? You got to think about supply and demand, all of that stuff there. But inherent within capitalism is a certain kind of autonomy. And autonomy, no doubt, that was curtailed, right? <laughs> that was mm -hmm. limited um, precisely through this global phenomenon. And, um, you know, with that came, of course, not only the questions of uncertainty and perhaps even despair, depending on where one was in that market, but also other kinds of questions like, um, should we continue to press forward right now? I am personally not a business owner, uh, though I, of course, uh, enjoy some of the fruits of of the free market enterprise. And it's hard to even think of a world, I think if we're honest with ourselves, uh, that that is uh, situated differently. Of course, we can imagine and we can do that, but um, we are very much inscribed in a capitalist frame uh, of thought, if I could put it like that. So, mm -hmm. you know, with the presence of COVID, with the presence of this virus, and all of the curtailing effects uh, and the measures that were implemented, of course, there were tremendous economic ripples, of which we're still feeling the effects. And with that was the question of, okay, how do we reopen? And many are still wrestling with this. And I think one of the questions or one of the key ways in which we need to sit with something like this is how do we work together, right? Mm -hmm. Um which in one sense is contrary to a capitalist spirit that maybe one may say seeks to cultivate an, uh, an autonomy rooted in the individual, the subjective eye. So it's like, well, how can mm -hmm. I one up and maintain this particular niche market? Or how can I take advantage actually of the circumstances mm -hmm. that we find ourselves in to you know, maybe mitigate some of the losses, even even capitalize on that and move forward. And so to think about, well, uh, sort of communal efforts is maybe antithetical to the spirit of capitalism, some some forms of uh, a capitalist reading. So yeah, it's, 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 you know, it's a weird thing. It's interesting you brought up about like the way forward requiring just a level of cooperation. Mm -hmm. And one thing we talked about um, last week was this idea of uh, like living in a post-truth world, mm -hmm. like dealing with a lot of lies and, and misinformation. So how do you think yeah. we can, how do you think people can work together and cooperate in the midst of, of living in a post-truth world during this pandemic? Yeah. I'm a kind of grassroots um you know, uh, kind of guy, you know, uh, so I think, mm -hmm. um, it's easy for us to, let me speak in the eye. It's easy for me to think about potential solutions or way forwards in a systemic sense and, and, and think big picture, which I think has its place, of course. But mm -hmm. I think one of the, one of the, um, ways forward here is using the resources that we have to really uphold the truth, whatever that may be. And I think a part of what that looks like, of course, is a wise use of social media, 
a wise use of media, period, whatever media we have access to, uh, social influencers, if we want to invoke such a term. Um, but also with regards to the grassroots, what, what I'm referencing here, uh, just starting with our neighbors, starting with those who are in mm. the closest proximity to us, our family, our spouses, our boos, our friends, whoever it may be, and being intentional about having those conversations. My suspicion is that, you know, we go into our silos, we go into our echo chambers, something that I, I made brief reference to last week in our uh, recording, and we just stay there, right? And, and that has mm -hmm. a sort of oscillating effect that the harmonics just increases, the harmonics just increase over time uh, with that, and it could generate, mm -hmm. you know, untruths. So striking out um, from our little groups, our pacts, our cliques, and um, having those sometimes hard conversations. So one of the reasons why we find ourselves in the post-truth world, and of course, this is such a, I mean, <laughs> a diagnosis of that would require an entire semester to unpack that would, of course, mm. deal with the genealogies of modernity and post-modernity and certain philosophical presuppositions that, that, that galvanize the system um, and whatnot. Of course, we don't have that time right now. Maybe we can follow up with some other episodes just exploring that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah. But, but I think just keeping it very practical, uh, when we encounter um, truth or truths, being intentional to share that and being willing to have discourse with those who maybe have a knee-jerk reaction for whatever reason, or they just simply say, no, I, I think that's false. And then rather just cutting down, just stopping the conversation, we say, no, let's, you know, and as far as is, it's possible for us, let's continue this conversation going. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know what I mean? Being intentional to just open up uh, that space and and really have dialogue, dialogos, right? Sharing in word and in being, which is hard. It's hard. Uh, why? I for me again, speaking in the eye. Uh, if if I see someone standing in contradistinction to what I perceive as the truth, and they are very adamant about that, uh, my my natural inclination is to be like, all right. That's on you, bro. I'm gonna do me, right? In, in one sense, like I'm just not yeah. gonna pursue it. I don't have the energy. I don't have the time. And of course, there's elements mm -hmm. of that. But um, I, I guess the challenge that I would want to put out there is, what would it look like for us to be intentional regarding the cultivation of certain truth dynamic conversations in a post-truth world? What can we do to cultivate spaces and places? to use it, of course, perhaps metaphorically, but maybe even literally, where we can engage in the truth. We can pursue mm -hmm. the truth. And I think also we can learn to do that when we recognize, perhaps, that even when we think we possess the truth or a portion of the truth, it may perhaps just be a portion. So that, in other words, entering the conversation, entering into these spaces, from the frame of a journey rather than let me instruct you about what the truth is rather when we choose to enter into dialogue we're coming with the hope of going hand in hand with that person 
onward on a journey. So there's a sort of dynamism there that that moves away from a static or a banking method of education where it's like, okay, you're clearly ignorant. Let me inform you. And of course, mm-hmm. if that's done in a certain way, that can just simply raise the walls up a bit more, especially mm-hmm. in a post-truth mm-hmm. world. Let's let's journey together, you know. Uh, and and of course, this requires certain virtues, right? Patience, a kind of courage. Why courage? Well, because maybe in that journey, we may discover that what we thought was the fullness of truth, or at least a, a, a decisive key of that truth, maybe is not, or it's questionable. So we have to come with a sense of courage to explore and to be vulnerable, right? Given that the possibility is something other than what we think. So there's a lot of things there um, that we have to, as a people, cultivate in a post-truth world. It sounds like the individual prior to having the types of conversations that you're talking about mm-hmm. with other people, mm-hmm. when the way that you describe it, it sounds like the individual needs to kind of do some some work on themselves or like be at a certain space in order to be ready to handle um, difficult conversations like that in a post-truth world. Yeah. Um, what do you think the individual can do prior to stepping out of their comfort zone and having the conversations, whether with loved ones or with complete strangers, like how, how what should my posture be going into this space? Cause it sounds very challenging. It is challenging. And, and as you, I think are, I clearly identifying there is required a moral worth, uh, a certain kind of disposition that requires us to indeed engage in a journey uh, mm-hmm. in a post-truth world. I think one of the things that we can do in order to grow in that area is learn how to listen. Now, what does that mean, right? <laughs> um, here is something that I try to do. I'm far from being, how can I put this, uh, secure in this. Um, That is to say, there's a lot more room for growth for me. But what I try Mm. to do is engage in conversations with folks who think very differently than me about a particular subject. Um, And I just learn to listen. Um, and, And I learn to, in other words inquire about what they are sharing about, um, follow up with questions, and and to quiet the, again, temptation towards a knee-jerk reaction to shoot back with a defense um, mm-hmm. or to say, nah, nah, nah. So here, here's one way. Here's, <laughs> here's one way of, of, of doing that. If I don't have a dialogue partner, um, and I have a certain political leaning to use politics, for instance, that, mm-hmm. that runs completely contrary to the narrative that comes out of Fox news, <laughs> right? And not, not taking shots here, but, um, I may ask myself, Hmm, Joe, what would it look like for me to actually put on Fox news seasonally, right? Small doses, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. To, to, to hear What's being shared there? 
Um, and, and how do I, this is key, listen without looking for critique, right? That's hard because mm -hmm. that requires a charitable listening. That requires uh, a benefit of the doubt. <laughs> Just mm -hmm. sort of saying, all right, let me, let me try to understand the rationality. If there is something like that there, operative in some form, what what is what is the reasoning here? Um, and just sit with that. What that does is it breaks me out of the cocoon. It 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 exposes me to the other narrative, and it's a real exposure, right? Rather than listening from the posture of defense and bringing my own. Uh, beliefs concerning what is going to be said and to already consider it as false de facto because it's coming out of Fox News, I'm going to mm -hmm. say, okay, let me try to give this a bit more of a charitable reading. And boom, there it is. I, I kind of enter in. Now, it's not a dialogue, right? I'm, I'm just uh, choosing to tune into one of the propagating machines uh, that 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 really is 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 uh, responsible for this kind of narrative that comes out from a certain, uh, let's say, sociopolitical perspective, but I think that's important to do, uh, uh, in in the kind of cultivation and the the cultivation of a disposition that allows us to journey with people, both those who are part of our tribe and those who are not to journey. Um, I think that's important in a post-truth world. You know what I mean? I think that's really important. So that's a small uh, example. I heard this term bad faith used mm -hmm. quite a bit in reference to either particular political leanings yeah. or groups or persons and how they're functioning or how they are dialoguing. Um, and I, I wanted to ask you like how, how to confront um, let's say a bad faith actor, if, if one, like if I were to identify someone as operating out of bad faith, so to speak, how do I deal with that? You know, like how do I, one, how do I recognize that? How do I stay true to myself, but also mm. still be a good listener to this person? Or, or like, when do I leave the conversation? Because I, I feel like that's a, a more common thing that, um, we will be dealing with um, yeah. in the the world that we live in where somebody is acting out of bad faith and yet we're trying to somehow reconcile or have conversations um, and dialogue, but there's that element of bad faith. Well, how is bad faith being defined here? How is it uh, usually used uh, in, in, the, in the way you've encountered it? What is, what is meant by that? Yeah, I think it, it means kind of like like a certain level of deception uh -huh. that like uh, I'm arguing a, a position, but I'm actually like, I don't actually feel that way. You know, mm. like I'm just taking that stance. Mm. If I, I think that's my understanding of, of bad faith, that there's like a level of hypocrisy mm. and deception behind what I am saying mm. outwardly. Mm. That's a good question. I would, I think want to inquire 
first thing, one of the first things that I would do is, is desire to inquire why this level of deception? Mm-hmm. Um, why does this person feel the need to argue for a position that she or he doesn't actually believe in? Is this an intellectual exercise uh, within an academic discourse? Maybe not, clearly not, if it's in a maybe certain media context. Um, is it because they want to save face? Uh, they they want to win the approval of many. They don't want to be ostracized or targeted or scapegoated uh, for what they really believe. Um, and, you know, I would want to then be, to some degree, sympathetic uh, with that. It doesn't excuse it, but um, perhaps the arena is so toxic that folks are afraid to truly share what's on their heart. And so mm-hmm. just to uh, placate and, and, and give what they perceive people want to hear, they'll just kind of articulate that view. Now, of course, if it's coming from a deeper place, if it's coming from not necessarily deeper, I didn't mean to use that phrase, but more of a malicious place, let's use that, mm. okay. um, a kind of cunning that that is that is you know j- just for whatever reason right to one up let's say one then needs to ask oneself um is this the time to throw pearls to the swine <laughs> this is a very strong mm-hmm. language right this is of course i'm quoting jesus here with regards to sharing the truth with those who are incapable in this space that they're in to receive the truth. So if we open up the Gospels, um, it's fascinating how Jesus does not address, um, or let me say it like this, answer every question that is posed to him. And that's Mm. because he is profoundly cognizant not only of the question or questions that are being put forth to him, but he is aware even more so of the questioner, the heart behind the question, and whether or not it's coming from a place of deception, a place of uh, suspicion uh, that is unhealthy, or real curiosity. And Mm. there is a model there, I think, that we can learn from. Now, of course, Jesus uh, has a clear mission, and that needs to be then therefore contextualized in light of his mission, but for me, um, if I sense the person is really, as we would say on the streets, not about this life, then I probably <laughs> wouldn't waste much of my time pursuing mm. a conversation. Mm. That being said, I would want to, in good sort of good faith here, and, and, and again, a spirit of charity, want to always be ready for the possibility of a follow-up conversation if I see the person is willing to do that mm. and is able to be vulnerable. Now, I think for our listeners, they hear this, they may say, you know, the temptation may be, wow, this is really complicated. Like who has the capacity to do this? Like, I'm just, whatever, I'm just not going to deal with anybody. And I get that, you know, I, I can get the, I can see um, that. And it does require mm. certain moral fortitude to handle mm-hmm. these kinds of conversations, to be intentional, just to be intentional. But I would say start small, start with the mustard seed, right? Uh, start with just being intentional. And I think what happens is if we choose to 
start there. It's like, okay, let me, I'm gonna, I'm gonna this week or this month, I'm gonna practice being intentional uh, about having conversations with those who think very differently than me. Okay. Uh, and we just work on that, just being intentional. We, right, we may not, it, it may not actualize. We may not, in fact, engage in those conversations. But if we're working on that internal, uh, that inner disposition of intentionality, um, I, I, I believe that will be a major step forward. So start small, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and work close to home. That is to say with those who are in your circle, Right. Uh, mm. Don't try mm. to be some kind of evangelist. Yeah, standing on the street, standing corner. on the street. You know what I mean? <laughs> the and, megaphone. Yeah, yeah. yeah, just work, work, yeah. working. You know, and 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 those conversations, mind you, usually are the hardest with those yeah. who are at home, yeah. especially if they have a different perspective than you. What if, um, let's say, I am not interested? You know, a conversation on on politics or, or society, morality comes up during Thanksgiving time mm. with the family mm. and it's like, I don't want to hear it. I'm not interested. Like, is it still important to do the work that you are talking about? Yeah. Like, even if I don't want to have those types of conversations. Absolutely. I think we have a moral obligation to that. And I think, can you explain that? Yeah. That moral obligation. Yeah. Yeah. About? I think again, I think in the post truth world, it is virtuous to be concerned and to be a pursuer of the truth. We need the truth. What is truth? Truth Mm -hmm. is that which corresponds to reality. Truth Mm -hmm. is what is, (laughs) right? Truth Mm -hmm. is what is, what corresponds to what is, to reality. That is to say, if we live in a post-truth world, then de facto we live in an insane world, for we are out of touch Mm -hmm. with reality, right? Mm -hmm. So, and we need truth, for truth is the cornerstone for humanization. It is, it is absolutely essential, I would submit, for human flourishing. This is why it is our moral responsibility to cultivate those spaces and to pursue the truth and hopefully to do it in community rather than in our respective silos in disunity. Now, that being said, um, how do we do this with those who are just a political or don't care, don't give a crap about any of this, they like whatever. Well, mm-hmm. we can model it in the way we live and what we say. And if we do that again from a place of charity and openness, that brings about a level of attraction. I really think that. I really believe mm-hmm. it brings about a level of attraction. If they sense, if folks sense that you're not defensive and not quick to judge um, and that you are actually quicker to listen and to ask follow-up questions and there's not the feeling of, uh, you're just trying to get me into a corner, but wow, Mm. this person is really seeking to understand where I'm coming from, that that brings Mm. the walls down, you know? So... That creates, as many people would use the language today, a safe space. Um, I'm using it here differently, though. And so this is a good thing. So I think modeling, modeling, modeling goes a long way. How we Mm -hmm. carry ourselves, the kinds of conversations, and again, the aura that we emit with regards to these Mm -hmm. things. I think that goes, I, I just, it's just huge. Last question, yeah. just to kind of tie everything together. Um, 
How do we embrace the new that for some, I mean, unfortunately, there, there's some folks out there who have dealt with very real and tragic loss during the pandemic and not just their their job or their finances, but their loved ones, you know, they're, they're entering a new space where there was tremendous loss and now they're, the world is kind of, you know, trying to open up and, and give this appearance or, or function the way that it quote unquote functioned pre pandemic. Um, I suspect that there's like just a new chapter in a lot of people's lives. And the big question that I, I want to close our time here with is like, how do we, um, either anticipate or embrace these new things that are going to be popping up in the individual's life. And then also just even like on a community level, like on a group level or, or with our, our families yeah. and our loved ones, but we're entering like a new space. How do we navigate the new yeah. that we're entering? In? What a great, what a great question. A couple of things. Um, number one, slow down. <laughs> uh, be willing to slow down temptation again is to return quickly back to how things were before mm-hmm. uh, and to act as if everything's back to normal things will never be mm-hmm. the same now i don't mean to say that in a defeatist or uh, fatalistic sense right but just the fact that this happened in our lifetime, in our psyche, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Things mm-hmm. won't be the same. It's like it's like pre nine eleven and post nine eleven. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Uh, so, mm-hmm. my first word of advice: let us approach this slowly. Now, this, of course, this is not advice with regards to reopening societies or businesses or whatever the case is. I mean, mm-hmm. inwardly, right? And to approach it slow is not necessarily to be overly cautious, but to be opened to the new. See, if we approach this transition slowly, that gives us time, especially inwardly, to adapt to the new and to be ever open to that novelty that that is, right? That has come upon us, that is dawning, and that has, in one sense, arrived. Interestingly enough, when you asked the question, I thought of Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mm. and Mm -hmm. this young Palestinian Jewish girl under Roman occupation in her um, profound humility and smallness is encountered with the new that is the radical new in the person, in the angelic personage of Gabriel, you know? Um, hail, full of grace, the Lord is with you, right? And she's troubled. She's deeply troubled. And she asks the question, how will this be since I know not man, right? Because Gabriel says to her, you're going to become the mother of God. <laughs> this is like, wait a minute, mm-hmm. what? And <laughs> it's a lot. <laughs> yeah. So her, her response is the great fiat. Let it be done unto me according to your word. So what does that mean? There is a, not a fatalistic resignation of the will, but an intentional giving over of our will to divine providence. This is the best place to be 
in the face of the new to say, Lord, mm. there are many things that I have no idea what is happening um, and, and what will come, but let it be done unto me according to your word. I am open and I want to be ever more opened to the new that is breaking in to our reality. The new in the economic, in the social, in the political, uh, the new in all the other spheres. And that's scary. That, that's not, that, that requires faith. That requ sur to surrender well requires deep faith. And when I say deep faith, I don't mean something uh, like the size of a mountain, just the size of a mustard seed. Mm -hmm. Say, Lord, you know, all right, let your will be done. I'm open to this. Mm -hmm. And I think mm -hmm. when we do that, when we do that, we are ready to dance. And what I mean by that metaphorically is I love... And for those of us who, for those of you who may not know, I love to dance. I love to dance. Yes, he does. And, <laughs> <laughs> and um, when you're dancing to a song, uh, or to a band, or to right musicians, whatever that that you're you're not aware of, you may not know that song. The dance requires an agility, uh, and a, and a kind of durability that that is ever opened to the new. You see what I mean? You got to learn how to move with the beats and the rhythms and the timing and the pace, especially when you're not aware. But this is, this is the heart of dance, even with songs that you are aware of. To do it with freshness and novelty is to be opened to the new, even in what is perhaps in one glance seen as old. The old always bears the new. I know I'm getting a little perhaps philosophical and whatnot, but but if we are opened to providence in this sense with a, a, a profound faith that is willing to walk hand in hand with the infinite, then and then and then we are ready to dance rather than fearfully hiding under the proverbial rock. I think this is the way forward. So take it slow and... Let your will be done. Let your word, let it be done unto me according to your word. Uh, surrendering to divine providence. Joe, um, thank you very much for, for sharing that. Um, it's a lot to process and take in, but we're going to keep having conversations like this. And I hope to dive even deeper into um, just those, those types of reflections, because I think it's going to be very, very necessary as we move forward. I, I am really looking forward, man. This is exciting. <laughs>